Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, this is James Lomenzo from The Mighty Megadeth. And you're listening to Hook Rocks with my good friend, Jay Scott. Welcome back. It is The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. I'm your host, Jay Scott, taking you on another rock and roll journey. We have another live album review to do today. We know how much you guys enjoy these episodes. We've done Strangers in the Night by UFO, Kiss Alive, uh, Rockin' the Fillmore by Rockin' the Fillmore East uh, by Humble Pie. Armed and Dangerous by Thin Lizzy and Live After Death by Iron Maiden. So check out all those previous episodes of this quarterly series that we do. Uh, we enjoy talking about these albums. It gives us a chance to revisit them. We always do a poll like a month before with four different options to give you the chance to decide on which album for us to talk about. And this was the choice this time. It was Judas Priest Unleashed in the East, the 1979 release uh playing over a couple nights in japan and we're going to get into it here shortly but before we begin i always kind of do a quick rundown of what we've been doing and who we've been talking to as i always mentioned we are part of the pantheon podcast network a great network of music related podcasts so check out pantheon pods on instagram 
Twitter and Facebook. Give them a search and check out my friends like Mac from the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast, Tom and Zeus on the number one rated Kiss podcast, Shout Out Loudcast, Chris and Aaron on Decibel Geek. Check them out. They got their rockin' pod coming up. Martin Popoff, the rock historian, the legendary DJ, Mistress Carrie, and Carmen Apice and Vinny Apice on the Hanging and Banging podcast. And check out some of my other friends outside of Pantheon, like the Itch Rock and Radio Show, All Things Blues and Southern Rock, and the Pot of Thunder, the gentleman. And I use that term loosely on the Pot of Thunder podcast. Those guys are a lot of fun. They just retweeted the episode that I was on where we discussed my favorite song, In the City, by Joe Walsh, and also the Eagles version as well. Don't forget to check out The Hook Rocks on all platforms and all podcast platforms. We're available everywhere, Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, and all podcast platforms. So please check us out there and set your app to automatic download so you get the latest episode right to your phone and all previous 400 plus episodes too. We've done a lot over the three plus years and we're very proud of the work and the interviews and the discussions that we've had. So please check them out and write us a review on any platform, whether it's Apple, Spotify, you can even write a review on Facebook, wherever you access our podcasts, you can definitely write us a review and we do appreciate it. We've had some great episodes recently on the show. Um, We just did a new music spotlight with the band GA20, great traditional blues band that I enjoy talking to, and I think you will too. We had Devin Allman from the Allman Betts Band talking the Allman Family Revival Tour that begins in Georgia in a couple weeks. We discussed why algorithms and TikTok are ruining rock music with with rock music insider Christian Eagle. Very important episode for you to listen to and why and how algorithms throttle discovery. We did another new music spotlight with Timmy Ruff from the New Roses, as well as Jax Hollow, singer-songwriter, who's just poised to have a big year next year. Talked to Anthony Gomes on his new album, as well as Ches Kane, James Lomenzo, Orianthi, and Mark Tremonti. So check all those out and check out our Quarterly album review with Chris Corradetti, where we talk about the top albums in the third quarter. Don't forget, we have our top fourth quarter album review coming up at the end of December and our yearly annual top albums. This year is 2022. We've got a lot of great albums to talk about for sure, and we we will be doing that. Now on to our current episode with Rob. Robin the Hood. You can follow him at the Recividus on Twitter. He is my contributor to these episodes, to these live album reviews. As I mentioned, we've done a lot over the last year and a half. I think we started this back in the third quarter of 2021, and uh, we are continuing with this episode, Unleashed in the East by Judas Priest. One of the cool things about this discussion is I just had a chance to see Judas Priest on their anniversary tour two weeks ago at the Genesee Theater in Waukegan, Illinois, which is right outside of Chicago. And they played a lot of songs that are on this album. And it was cool to kind of revisit some of the stuff. I've seen them a couple times over the last few years. So we are going to talk this monumental album, probably their biggest album up until, you know, this point in their career. Uh, They were largely a European band. They had mild success here in the States. And this came out, and this really did blow up for them. 
which then followed British Steel, which was a studio album after this, which had the big hit Living After Midnight. But they were really kind of an underground band in the U.S., and they had their success in Japan and the U.K., but uh, this was a big album for them in 1979, as a lot of albums, a lot of live albums were for a lot of bands uh, during that decade. So without further ado, what's happening, Rob? How are you? Hey, Jay, I'm doing well. I'm glad to talk to you again. I, I voted in the poll. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be voting in the poll that we're doing, but I voted. I was torn between, I think you ran, uh, one of the other choices was uh, Motorhead's uh, No Sleep to Hammersmith, to Hammersmith. And I was really torn between uh, that one and this one. I think I voted for this one just, just because it's um, it's a pretty important, it's almost a turning point in the band's uh, catalog where from the, they sort of moved from the, uh, early seventies, uh, very raw type of sound into the very slick production of the eighties. And this is right before that, that occurs. Um, and I also voted for this one because it has all material from the seventies. This is early Judas Priest stuff. And this is my favorite period of their stuff. Yeah. It's a very overlooked period as they got more popular, obviously with British steel and screaming for vengeance and defenders of the faith, which is are probably those are there three big albums? Uh, I know Point of Entry is kind of sandwiched in between there. And even though Point of Entry seems to have gotten better over time, uh, it was uh, thought to be their weakest album of those four during that period. Obviously, they came back with Screaming for Vengeance and the rest was history. But you're right. This was a more raw pre-sound. Uh, I, I don't know you know, what their direction would have been had this album not blown up for them because... Previous to this was Hellbent for Leather slash Killing Machine, the album that preceded this album. And yeah, it was a great period for Priest. You know, some of their great historic tracks that are on this album, and they're even not on this album, are are um, are a part of that uh, the period, that era of Priest. I just saw them a couple of weeks ago, as I mentioned, and they did Beyond the Realms of Death, which... I have never seen them play that live. And that's one of my favorite songs of theirs. And I remember how much that song mesmerized me when I was a kid. And I mentioned that in the review that we just did of the show. To hear that live and, and to experience that was, was a real treat. To go back and revisit. And I, we talked before we started recording how it's, it's nice to revisit these live albums that we haven't heard in a long time. I don't remember the last time I've listened to Unleashed in the East. It's got to be 20 plus years that I have not listened to it and, and checking it out. I still remember my brother getting a tape from a friend and having one of these little recorders. They were not, it's not even a stereo. It didn't have a radio. It had the buttons on the left-hand side. It was about the size of a shoebox. Um, and not as thick as a shoebox, but you know, in, in, in size, uh, um, comparison. And it had a cassette. You put the cassette in, you put the cassette thing down and it had a speaker on the right. And I remember standing over it as my brother played it and he hearing diamonds and rust from this album. It was incredible. And of course, growing up Catholic and being in Catholic school, having the band Judas Priest and, and, having to perform covert operations to get <laughs> Judas Priest music into the house because of the name and what it signified to a strong Catholic family. 
was uh, brought back a lot of memories as I listened to this. And it's a real treat because I, again, this was a big album when I was a kid. Uh, my introduction to Priest obviously came after the album was released. But back in the day, you used to listen to stuff that was released, you know, a few years earlier or whenever it was because you didn't have the access that you did now. That's just the way it was. Yeah, it's uh, uh, Stained Class is my favorite Judas Priest album. And so I'm glad you, you brought that song up because when I first heard Stained Class, that was the song that that, that really kind of captivated me the most. And it's it's obviously a classic and it it has a very bleak storyline to it. And, you know, I think a lot of their songs, even up through the, um, the big albums of the 80s, they often seem to have a, um, they kind of told the story of a protagonist that was almost like an anti-hero in some senses. And, and there's always a um, kind of a doomed theme around that, that protagonist. Um, and, and that carries across other bands as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, and, and I, I wish that, um, there are a couple of different versions of, of Unleashed in the East that are out there. And I wish that Beyond the Realms of Death was on the most widely available ones, which I don't have the one that has that. I have the 2001 uh, re-release that has the extra tracks, but not that one. Yeah, it was only released originally as a 10-song album, as most albums were at that time. And of course, there's been reissues, and there's been a couple of different various versions of that. Um, when I revisited this, I listened to the reissue, which had the three extra songs of Delivering the Goods, which in my opinion is the best Judas Priest song of all time, uh, Hellbent for Leather, and Starbreaker, which is another favorite of mine too. But to kind of go back and lead into this album, we, we can't really do it without discussing Hellbent for Leather slash Killing Machine that came out before, because that really was what you know set the tone and, and set up this album, because it did have some success in the States, although it's still kind of an underground band, but it was really big in the UK. Um, it had the controversial uh, album title, Killing Machine, which in the UK and Europe and all, all other places, it, it stayed that way. But in the US, they had to change it to Hellbent for Leather. But, you know, this has songs that they still perform today. I mean, they still perform Hellbent for Leather. They still perform Green Menelishi, which is an old Fleetwood Mac cover, not the the popular Fleetwood Mac songs everybody knows. This is when Fleetwood Mac was a really, you know, big blues band. Um, Running Wild, which is a song they're performing now on their current tour. So those three songs, especially Green Menelishi and, and Hellbent for Leather, have been staples of their shows ever since they released their, their, this album. Delivering the Goods, I think, is a very underrated song. Rock Forever is on Unleashed in the East, and we'll get into it. Evening Star, which is another one of my favorites, too, as well. Um, and I also like Before the Dawn. Um, so this was a big album going into Unleashed in the East. They had built up their fan base in the in Japan. They were they were they had rabid fans in Japan, and that's why they decided to really record this over two nights in Tokyo. Um, and uh, the rest is history, as they say, because this album really blew up for them. Yeah, and, and it's it's pretty interesting how big rock bands were in Japan during the seventies and eighties, and on afterwards that. But you had you had this um, sort of string of 
live albums that were recorded in Japan where it's clear that the audience is really with the band. I mean, it kind of started with, um, in like 72 with Deep Purple's Made in Japan. Um, and then, uh, this one and Cheap Tricks Live at Budokan came out this, both in, uh, 79. And then shortly thereafter was, uh, Iron Maiden's Made in Japan. Um, and so a lot of really important live albums, uh, sort of came from bands that were outside of their initial audience. Um, in a different location, but really just clicking. And I think that growth in the Japanese audience, especially with rock and metal, still exists today. You know, that that captive audience. I mean, you still see bands, bands from the 70s and 80s still having a lot of success in Japan uh, because the fan base there has never left them. And it, and it also creates new fans there too as well. I think... When you compare the U.S. audience for rock music compared to Japan, Japan is still very much a rock and roll, hard rock metal country than the than the U.S. is. And it's because of albums like this, because of bands like Priest and other bands, too, that have that have recorded and, and had success there, too, as well. Kiss is very big in Japan, too. Um, they have a huge uh, Japanese audience. And in fact, when Kiss was going through their valley of popularity back in the early 80s, Japan was was still a big country for them. I think that's that's actually it's it's great that the we live in a, in a time where it's kind of a worldwide market for for music. So that if there's if you have a band that you really like and it's not exactly taking off in your area. There's still an audience out there that, that can keep that band going and keep it alive so that we can still enjoy the music, even if we, the people around us don't know what to listen to. <laughs> so as we begin the discussion on Unleashed in the East, of course, the albums that preceded this was Sin After Sin, Staying Class, as you mentioned, Killing Machine, as I mentioned. And we start the album off with Exciter, which is off. Stained Glass, which really sets the tone for the show. Um, one real quick thing to mention about this album that's really interesting, you know, as we kind of begin our discussion, is the re-recording of Halford's vocals for this album, because apparently, and this is according to Rob Halford in interviews that he's done, um, the recording m- messed up the vocals, but the rest of the band sounded great. So he went into this studio to retrack his vocals, as a lot of albums did. I mean, we, we've talked a lot about these live yeah. albums that we've done, that we've talked about. And almost every one of them, I think probably the only one that probably didn't have any issues or any studio uh, work done to him was probably the Humble Pie one. Yeah. I think yeah. that one had any any work done. But Kiss has come out and said that they had to do some stuff. Um UFO, I think, has talked about doing uh, some of the guitar work that had to be redone. Um, so there's always things when a live album is recorded that's not perfect, and it costs a lot of money to you to you know for you to set up recording and do all this stuff to have a live album come out. So when you have it and then you it doesn't live up to what you're expecting or what the band is expecting, you do go back into the studio and you do fix some things. And in this case, it was Halford's vocals. I do believe he tracked it live, so there wasn't any, you know, overdubbing or whatever they do in, in the studio 
but um, it doesn't take away from the atmosphere of the album. And the album sounds great. The whole band sounds great. And of course, his vocals do sound great. But it begins with Exciter, which is off Rob's favorite album by Priest Stained Class. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I was thinking about the the over the go back and re-recording of the, the vocals. I think they did a pretty good job of that because they resisted temptation to do too many like uh, multiple vocal tracks of Halford in the same song. So it really does still have that same live feel where it's one voice that you're hearing, um, especially on a couple of songs where in, on the studio version, they, they have um, like Halford doubling himself in a different octave. But uh, it, it, it's too bad that the vocals didn't take well because the performances that you hear um, have that great energy behind them. Um, you hear the when I listen to, to Tipton and Downing play, it's almost like it's one guy with four arms that is, is playing to me just because they, they complement each other so well. They, they play in such um, lockstep with each other. Uh, and I don't think that there's enough credit given to God bless Ian Hill and his bass for being willing to be kind of in the shadows of the three dominant personalities. And then Les Binks was the, the drummer here. Um, I do kind of wish that as far as the sound is concerned, that the, the drums were mic'd a little better. I think it's a, it's a common problem that you have with live drums, especially going back to the seventies. Uh, but the guitars on this sound great. Um, Exciter, you know, when I first listened to Stain Class, Exciter was not a song that immediately grabbed me. Um, I think if I had heard the live version of the song before I heard the studio version of the song, I probably would have liked it more at first listen. It grew on me over time. I liked the song a great deal. And it shows one of the, uh, on the album, it's probably got the best moment of interaction with the crowd with the little break, fall to your knees and repent if you please, where the whole crowd chants along with him. Um, and, and that's, I love that about live albums where the crowd becomes part of the, the performance. Yeah, that is a great moment and a great way to begin the album because it really does set the tone um, with the audience participation and and with the song. And then that's really a common theme that we talk about a lot with these albums is how important the first song is because it sets the tone for the listener who's listening to the album for the first time, listening to performance for the first time, and also for the audience that's part of the show, right? Because if you don't set the tone and you're recording a live album, you're going to miss that synergy. You're going to miss that crowd interaction. It's very important. I mean, you think of the albums that we've talked about, you know, with Aces High, Live After Death, and you talk, and you think of, you know, Detroit Rock, or no, I'm sorry, um, Deuce, by kiss for kiss alive and you think of the other albums we talked about they all have that moment that first song that really brings the audience in that's there at the show and at the same time brings in the audience that's listening to the recording so it's kind of has a dual effect that's very important nothing is worse than going to see a live concert and the first song is a dud because it's very hard to get (laughs) that crowd back after that, even if it's even if it's a mild success, it has to be the first song of a live show has to be something that punches you right in the gut. Yeah, that get, gets you going, that gets you charged up, that gets you into the show for the next hour and a half to two hours. And 
it was a big thing and a lot of bands were successful back in the 70s and 80s and i think it kind of got a, to be a lost art um in the 90s and the 2000s and you know I, we go to a lot of live shows you and i both go to a lot of live shows and there's you know there's always that that feeling that when something falls flat that first song it's just you're never able to recapture energy that people are wanting and people are anticipating yeah. for yeah. exciter definitely definitely does that on this on this album yeah it's um it's kind of a feeding on itself kind of thing um where if the audience doesn't respond well to the first song it can play with the psyche of the band it can really bring the band's performance down but if you if you if you reach the audience in that first song everything clicks really like buoys the band and gives them energy especially when you have like a good one-two punch like this record does of energy um then you, you've like built up this wave that can carry you through the whole concert. And so the, the audience is, it's not only important to the audience for that first song to work well, but for the performers as well, I think. Yeah. This album uh, was recorded in September of a released in September of 1979 on Columbia records. As we mentioned, it was recorded over two nights in Tokyo and it's the first live album by the band. Obviously, a lot of 80s rock bands know the album Priest Live that came after the Turbo album. But this was the first U.S. album for them to hit the top 100. It was the best-selling album up until that point. Hit the U.K. top 10. And it's one of five Judas Priest albums to reach platinum status. Uh, but this is really where it all began for U.S. audiences. And then they all went back and started listening to Hellbent for Leather, Killing Machine, and Stained Glass, and Sin After Sin, and you know, Sad Wings of Destiny, all those albums that came before. Um, this was really the album that kind of went back. It was, the, it was the album that was produced by Tom Allum, who would remain with the band for the next decade. So they obviously liked the work that he did on that. And we did mention the re-recording of Halford's vocals for Unleashed in the East. But like a lot of bands in the 70s, this had the impact that they needed to reach U.S. audiences, to reach a wider global audience. It certainly did that. Um, and Judas Priest, you know, with the next album, British Steel, and then Screaming for Vengeance, Defenders of the Face, was arguably one of the biggest bands in the 80s because of this album yeah and i don't know if the um the production got better over time I, and we talked about when we talked about the kiss alive about how the studio albums were a little flat and the live album really gave you some of the energy that you really wanted from the songs since the songs themselves were inherently strong um i think that to some extent, that may be true as well with Judas Priest, where the, the live versions here have that power behind them and, and the more blended sound, whereas some of the studio production from the earlier stuff leaves you a little bit like, eh, it's, it sounds like everybody is sitting in a room by themselves and can't hear each other playing, which is obviously sometimes the case. But the, the stuff isn't mixed as well as you might want it to. Here you get like the, the whole band performing together and it feels much more like a um a song that's 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 playing out as a result of the synergy of the band members rather than just kind of isolated stuff that's played at the same time and i really like that about this album again you know the 70s was the was the decade of live albums and this was an important show for them 
and or important album for them as it reached a lot of different people and a lot of different audiences and became kind of the catalyst that came, you know, with, with the other albums. And we go into song number two, Running Wild from Killing Machine, which is another song that they're playing off of the, um, the, uh, or playing it on their current tour. Um, again, you know, that one, two punch that you mentioned, Exciter into Running Wild keeps the crowd going, keeps the, 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 the chaos of the crowd part of the album and and you feel that when you're when you're a listener when you're listening to it for the first time one of the things i like to do when we're we're talking about these actually you were talking about how long it's been since you listened to unleashed in the east um it hasn't been as long for me i know i listened to it probably about a year ago but i've I've been paying more attention when we're listening to live albums in preparation for these where i try when we have bands that have two guitar players to try and guess who is which one is in which channel and I certainly could be wrong. Um, to me, I think that Tipton is in the left channel and Downing is in the right channel. And I, I'm sure if somebody out there knows, they'll let, they'll let me know on Twitter. Um, but I think that, that Tipton's sound is a little um, rounder, for lack of a better word, because he tend to favor the – he played usually Strats and um, an SG back in that time frame. Um, and he favored the Whammy Bar – which I hear a little more of that dive bomby thing sometimes going on on the left channel. And then Downing always liked the the flying bees, and they have a little more bite to the sound of them. And I hear that a little more. Um, and, and if you're, someone's more familiar with the playing styles of the two, you could probably pick it out a little better. I know there is some distinctive playing styles that each adopted, uh, even though they complemented each other really well. But I was doing that during Running Wild, trying to think, okay, who am I listening to in which channel, just because I'm a nerd. <laughs> That's interesting. I, I never, when I listen to it, I kind of, I haven't had that moment. I'm trying to decipher which one's playing, but um, I'm just taking out the whole performance in. But yeah, I'd like to know that too. Who, which, which channel, uh, which guitar player is feeding each channel. So that's, uh, hopefully someone knows that. And if, and if you do know that, please comment either on, you know, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or write us a message you know, on uh, any platform that you're listening to in, in, in a review that you might write. So we do appreciate it. After uh, Running Wild, they go into Sinner and then Ripper. What can you take away from, or what do you take away from those two songs um, in their performance? Well, one of the things um, that I like about Sinner, which Juice Priest was always really good at, especially in the early days, is they have, the songs have changes in them to keep, the listener's interest um, in center, like the, the riff the, 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 that starts off the song really has kind of a, eh, it's, it's your average riff. But then when they hit the chorus, of the song, they change the beat without breaking stride. And suddenly your ears are a lot more interested in what's going on. And, and they do that throughout the song. Um, and the ripper, uh, they have that really cool, slightly out of the ordinary riff that's right after the chorus every time. And I, I think that Judas Priest has always been good about maintaining listener interest by the, to the songs having different segments to them, especially in the early days. And, um, when you have some of the longer, more epic songs, you, you certainly have a building effect, but even in some of the shorter songs, like running, uh, excuse me, um, the Ripper's only, it's not even a three minute song, but it has stuff that your ear wasn't quite expecting that, but works well. Yeah, no, I, I find that, 
amazing too because they were really one of the first bands to really incorporate that stuff you know the time changes and the seamless, seamless time changes um i mean obviously there were bands at the, at the time like rush but in terms of like heavy metal not a lot of bands were doing what priest was doing yeah the um uh, I was thinking when I was listening to the, I, I, as I said, I think I've listened to the album about three times in the last 24 hours. And every time I listen to the Ripper and that, that exit out of the chorus riff that I was talking about, I think to myself, this is where Slayer got the idea for their riffs. There, there's, there's something about it. Um, and if my, my knowledge of, of music theory was deeper, I could tell you which mode they're playing in. Unfortunately, I probably can't maybe, maybe high stick Nick can. Um, but uh, I think that this particular riff really influenced some of the riff styles that Slayer had later on. That it's not quite mainstream, but you think, oh, that sounds different. That sounds a little bit evil, a little bit enticing. And what's next? I need to hear more. <laughs> the next track, Green Menelishi. And this is why this album is why the Green Menelishi is still in the Judas Priest set list. To this day is because this was really the big song on this album. Um, this is one of the songs that really gained in terms of popularity and how it comes off live is why, like I said, this song still remains is one of the songs of, of, of one of the favorite songs of priest fans all over the world. Yeah, this um, it's the first of two covers, back to back covers that are on the album. Um, it, it certainly was the first time I heard Green Man Lishi when I and I did not know upon first hearing that it was a cover song. I thought, man, that's one badass song. If you go back and you listen to the 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 Peter Green uh, Fleetwood Mac version, which was a single from 1970, it was not a, originally an album song. Um, there's a lot of the same character of the song there, but it's a lot more down tempo than the Judas Priest version. They, they really picked up the energy in it. They made it a little heavier, although there are heavy elements in the song. Um, the one thing they took out so, somewhat is at the tail end of the Fleetwood Mac version, it has kind of this long kind of ghostly outro, uh, and they don't have that on the Jesus Priest version, which kept it a lot more compact, probably made it more accessible as a single. But they, it's a, a good example of taking a cover song and putting it into a slightly different genre and making it the band's own. And I, I bet that, the, that there are hordes of people out there who have no idea this is a cover song of a Fleetwood Mac song. No, I didn't know that, too. When I first heard that, I thought this was a pre-song. And it wasn't until years later that I, I saw that it was a Peter Green Fleetwood Mac song. I mean, it has a priest style title too as well you know yeah. i mean it's style in terms of how they name their songs and how they how they present the song so they do make it their own kind of like how zeppelin made a lot of their cover songs their own too uh but it's just a great track and and to have a song that's a cover it's kind of similar to you really got me by van halen kind of become one of their own you know, says a lot about how they approached it, how they presented the song, and how they made it a Judas Priest tune. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> the, the the next cover is is to me was a much greater departure from the original than this one was. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a Joan Baez song, Di- Diamonds and Rust, and 
Diamond Joan Baez, known as a folk singer, primarily um, in the 60s. This, you know, obviously people know of the of the Joan Baez Zeppelin song, Babe, I'm Going to Leave You, which they made their own, too. They kind of made it, you know, Zeppelin-esque, much more, a lot more harder. And Priest does the same thing with this cover song that originally appears on the Sin After Sin album. Uh, and again, it comes off live. It, it's It's just it's way better live to me. Well, let's just back up. It's a lot harder than the original song on you know that that appears on Sin After Sin, but it really captures Priest and it's a million times better live on this album than than what they were able to do on the Sin After Sin album. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, and again, if you compare this to the original song, the Joan Baez song, um, which is a very ballady folksy song that has kind of a less than intuitive melody to it. And it has an odd rhyming pattern to it as well. Because I, I, I thought, why would they pick this song? Um, it uh, when, when you listen to the studio version of the song on Sin After Sin, the first thing that hits me is, well, Jesus, this is a disco beat. What's going on here? But they kind of changed that a little bit on Unleashed in the East where it doesn't feel quite the, the, the same. Um, you know, there are two different recordings of this song that are out there by Judas Priest. Um, uh, the one that was on Sin After Sin was the, the more, uh, widely known one because it was on the original release, but there was a, they had previously tried to do the song before and the reissues of Rock Rolla have that song on there too. So really? you can hear the, the two different versions of it. Um, one of the other things that I thought was pretty interesting is as I was, looking at some of the stuff and, and listening to this in preparation, we have two different connections to Bob Dylan here uh, because the, the, the song that Joan Baez wrote apparently was about her relationship with Bob Dylan. And so I'm imagining Rob Halford singing to Bob Dylan. And then um, the, the band's name Judas Priest actually came from a Bob Dylan song from a long time ago when, when Judas Priest was originally a completely different band before they had ever recorded anything. And, and so I think that's strange. There are two ties to Bob Dylan that kind of coexist here. <laughs> that is interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know that that's how they got their name. Yeah. Yeah. What's the story behind that? Well, let me, let me see here. I had to, it, the, the song is the Bob Dylan song. It's um, the ballad of, uh, no, 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 mess it up. The Ballad of Frankie, where did it go? I was looking at this because I didn't know this until I was. Um, it's the Ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest is, is the name of the song. Hmm. And it's off of uh, the Dylan album, John Wesley Harding. Um, and I think it was from like 67 or something. But uh, it was it was chosen by the band's original bass player who was no longer with the band when they started recording. With the, the, what we think of as the classic lineup, but because um, I, I, I had wondered, I had heard people use Judas Priest as kind of a curse. Um, I, I distinctly remember a Hill Street Blues episode where the lieutenant who, who's in charge of the SWAT team uses it. <laughs> it's strange what things stick, stick out in your mind, but it, it goes back to Dylan, and that's how the band came about their name. Well, folks, I learned something new today. I did not know that. I always thought it was this, you know, anti-religion. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, because that's what I was told 
you know, in the halls of, of St. Emily's in, in uh, Mount Prospect, Illinois. That's, um, that's interesting. So I learned something new today. Thank you very much. <laughs> my pleasure. <laughs> on to Victim of Changes, which is one of my favorite pre-songs, and it's on the Sad Wings of Destiny album. And it begins the last three songs, all of which are on Sad Wings of Destiny, of the original Unleashed in the East. So the original Unleashed in the East only had nine songs. This is the first of the last three. Victim of Changes was part of the set list when I saw them, actually, I want to say 2018, 2019, um, when they came back on the Firepower, the original Firepower tour. They played this in their set, which was great because they hadn't played this in a long time, too, as well. And kind of getting back to what Priest is all about live is similar to other bands like Maiden and, and others. They do play songs for their fans that they have not played in a while. They like to bring out these treats, as I like to call them, that fans talk about, fans get excited about. I mentioned having them play Beyond the Realms of Death on this current set. They're also playing Jawbreaker and Steeler and what was the other one? Running Wild, as I mentioned. And then when I saw them a few years ago, they played um, Victim of Changes, which was outstanding. And my son then saw them and they did some songs off a of turbo that they haven't done in a while, but they do like to do that. Uh, bring back songs that they haven't played. They, they're even doing screaming for vengeance on this tour too, as well, which is a very difficult song to sing live and the Helford nails it definitely nails it. But victim of changes is another song. Again, time changes. Um, it takes you a little, uh, on, a, on a journey. Um, a lot of their older stuff, like Beyond the Realms of Death, like Victim of Changes is a little longer in terms of the songs. And I, I do enjoy that. I know our our friend Chris Corradetti, you know, doesn't like the long songs. He gets impatient with with that. I I enjoy that all the way days from you know from from enjoying Achilles Last Stand by Zeppelin or Cashmere. I like that. But Victim of Changes is is a definite priest staple in terms of what their legacy is about. I consider this probably their first song that really identifies their sound. Um, and it was off of Sad Wings of Destiny, which has one of the best album covers of all time. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this is just another great performance of this song. It, um, whenever I've seen discussions <clears throat> on, on Twitter, because that's the only social media platform that I'm on, for people who are serious Jewish priest fans going back through the, the years of the catalog, um, this song frequently pops up as the favorite song <clears throat> of, um, of those fans. It, um, I like you like epic songs. I especially like songs that, um, build over the course of the song and, and may start off with kind of a, a slower ballady feel, but they'd get to a point where it's, it's, it's got a lot more power behind it. This is that kind of song. Um, this is, I don't see how you have a, a live Judas priest without having this song. Um, I, I've only seen Judas priest once and that was in 88 in Denver. Um, it was on the random down tour, but this song was on the set list. Um, and it is a great song to have live, um, because it's kind of a, it's a story that takes you along. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. 
Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. It does. It's just, it's a, it does remind you, and I'll even bring it again, Beyond the realms of death, it does kind of. It's very Led Zeppelin esque in terms of the style, in terms of the journey, right? Because both songs kind of take you on that, which Zeppelin did a lot. And I know in an in interview years ago, I think it was KK Downing that talked about these two songs, about like kind of being their their Zeppelin songs, like their journey. Yeah. Like they're, I don't mean the band journey. I mean like on a journey and and you you hear beyond the realms of death. He compared it to, you know, their, their stairway to heaven. And I forget the song that he compared victim of changes to, but that was based on that interview. That was kind of the thought process when they were putting songs like that, like this together. Yeah. It's, um, I I love this song. I think it's, um, one of the, it's one of my, two favorite songs on sad wings of destiny. I'll, I'll tell you what the other one is when we get to the end of the album, the stuff that I wish for that was here on this. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. This is, um, one of the great album covers of t- all time. <laughs> if I had to pick five favorite three songs, this song would definitely be in the top five. Me too. Me too. Yeah, Victim of changes. I would say delivering the goods for me is in my top five beyond the realms of death. It's definitely in my top five. 
And if I had to round out the final two, I would put Screaming for Vengeance, and I would probably put uh, The Sentinel in there. I would agree with you on The Sentinel. I love that song. That's a great song. Um, and um, I think that if you put the um, the double song at the end of of Defenders, um, Heavy Duty. That, that's uh, that's. I'm sorry. Heavy Duty and Defenders of the Faith. Heavy, heavy Duty and Defenders of the Faith. I think that is. I like it because it is. A, I like double songs that one flows right into the other one. At least when they are good songs. Um, that's certainly after their song. Their their sound got a lot. F- thicker for lack of a better word the production really boosted up the the power of the guitars as far as like the mid-range and the bass part of the guitars um but yeah the sentinel is another iconic song that i think is is great which obviously was later on down the road what's your favorite piece song maybe dissident aggressor okay which is one of the songs that i wish was on this release um it has such a groove to the riff uh, and, and the way that Halford sings the, along with that groove, it just, it's, 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 it's a song that I can't listen to once. I have to go back and listen to it repeated times. And I think each time the volume knob goes up a little more. <laughs> yeah, no, um, that's a great song. I, my favorite is delivering the goods. I think delivering the goods is that you got another thing coming, headed out to the highway song before those songs came out it has that yeah, piece, yeah. has that priest swagger that you know is, is defined in those two songs but it's not very popular or not a lot of uh, people outside of priest fans really know that song yeah it's just got it's just got a punch to it that i just love and it's again it's like it's like that that first like if you look at heading out to the highway and point of entry and you look at you got another thing coming those are kind of like brother and sister songs, right? Well, delivering yeah, goods yeah. is kind of like the parent of those two songs, in my opinion. Sure, sure. Um, and I, I guess uh, I will just go down this path a little bit. The, the other things that I wish that were on this release, um, I wish there was more stained class on here. Uh, Saints and Hell has always been a favorite. Um, Savage is a great song. And of course, Beyond the Realms of Death, um, all I think should have been included in this. Uh, I can't help but wonder if the same concern over the delicate American palette, which caused them to change the name of Killing Machine to Hellbent for Leather, played a role in the song selection here. Um, I don't know if they thought that Saints in Hell might freak too many people out, uh, but those songs are all things that I wish were included here. And I wish, since they were on the Killing Machine slash Hellbent for Leather tour, I wish Killing Machine was on this this release because that's my favorite song on that album. You're right. I think, but but then they got songs like Genocide, right? And then yeah. I don't know, you know how much that played into it. I know as we get into this, get into this on a UK seven inch EP, Rock Forever, Hellbent for Leather, and Beyond the Realms of Death did come out as kind of an extra. Um, yeah. you know, yeah. seven inch, you know, uh, vinyl release later on, which had those two songs from Killing Machine and the one song from Stained Glass. So it definitely was recorded during this, during this, the, this, this tour, during these shows. They just, for whatever reason, maybe that was it. I don't know, but they, they yeah. decided not to put them on there. And even on the bonus stuff, before we 
you know, as we'll get into the, the, the bonus tracks, um, they didn't even put Beyond the Realms of Death on there. So it's kind of it's kind of strange why they didn't, because it's such a powerful song. But we'll get into yeah. that. Yeah. Last two songs, Genocide, Tyrant. Again, both off Sad Wings of Destiny. Um, four songs total off of Sad Wings of Destiny. And oddly enough, they only did two songs off Killing Machine, which was the, the album that preceded this. And they did four songs off Sad Wings of Destiny, which is their second album. So yeah. interesting song selections. Obviously, with the bonus tracks, they put three songs from Killing Machine on there. But to end with Victim of Changes, then in the Genocide and the Tyrant, that's an unusual... Those are unusual picks for a band with a new album that preceded that, those songs not being on that new album. And Genocide um, actually has the... Genocide was on uh, Sad Wings of Destiny, but it has the lyric that led to the title of the next album. It has the lyric Sin After Sin in, in the song. And so one song led into the title of the next album, which I, I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, I think Genocide is an example of a song where I was listening to see how they would go with the vocals because there's like, there, there's multiple tracks of the vocals in the studio version um, that you, if you have a true live song, you're not going to be able to replicate. Uh, but the live version, I, I think, flows really well. And both Genocide and Tyrant are good, more up-tempo, higher-energy ways in the, the, the original release. This album ends on, on with those two songs, and it concludes the Unleashed in these original um, release of nine songs on the album. And then we go into the bonus track section, which was released in 2001. And kind of surprised that they sat on these songs for so long yeah. and, and not release something sooner. Maybe they didn't want to compete with Priest Live, and maybe they didn't want to comp- compete with the stuff that they were doing Prior to that, like, you know, the Ram It Down album and Painkiller and all that other stuff that was coming out. But they did decide to release it through Japan on an EP um, in 2001 bonus tracks, another seven inch EP. And they did a UK one. But the the one in Japan, um, which, by the way, you can now hear on all the streaming sites, especially Spotify and Amazon. You can hear the, the, the four bonus tracks, which are Rock Forever. Delivering the Goods, Hellbent for Leather, and Starbreaker, which is another underrated song, too. Starbreaker is such a great tune. Yeah, Rock Forever is, a, you know, uh, Rob Halford was one of the early, uh, if maybe not the model for that kind of almost operatic uh, singing in, in heavy rock music. I mean, it, it's it, Bruce Dickinson certainly does it later on in Iron Maiden, but, um, God, I listened to him when he sings rock forever, I'm like, how does he sing like that? <laughs> it's, it's not falsetto. And that's, what's so impressive about it. Yeah. It, it's, you know, hearing him play live now, uh, just seeing him a couple weeks ago, you know, obviously he's past 70 now. Um, and, and obviously he, he prepares himself a lot more when he's, when he knows he's got to hit those high notes. I mentioned in a couple conversations how back in the day, you know, he could be casually walking on stage and just hitting these octaves that you could only dream of hitting with, with, with like very little effort. You know, now he, he, you know, puts his hands on his knees and 
brings that up through the diaphragm <laughs> and, and gets it out and he gets it out. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and of course, I mean, I mean, shame on me for even mentioning it. I mean, cause he is in his seventies, but he's still hitting it. I mean, whether, however he does it, he's still able to hit screaming for vengeance. You know how hard screaming for vengeance is to play live. And I mentioned that too, in an interview I just did with moon city masters, that'll be out um, in the next episode or two, but how like, that's like for a guy in his seventies to be seeing that. Yeah. It's just, it, it's mind boggling. Like how, how does he even, how, how can he even think of hitting that? That's it's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's, Raw vocal talent maybe should be discussed more often when when talking about great rock singers. I know there's there's plenty of people who recognize the the talent that he has, but he's um he, he just he brings out these things that are like completely in key, and 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 it seems like how can a human being, especially a, a guy, <laughs> be able to do that? And it's it's really amazing to me that. It's, his vocal talent is such that it is. It, it's, it's a huge part of the Judas Priest um, defining characteristics. I agree. It's it's such a a recognizable voice. It doesn't yeah. take you long to to know it's him within the first bar or two. You know it's Halford always. And part of the lore of Priest is is the metal god. Is that um, is that Rob Halford vocal range, and when you hear performances and, and you hear them live, he's so good live. And even though they had to redo the vocals for this, I don't doubt for for a second that this is not what he sounded like because I've seen him live, what three or four times I think over the years, five times maybe. The the memory's kind of foggy as I get older, but he's just got um, one of the most, I mean, when you think of the vocalists during that period, you know, you think of his contemporaries like Dickinson and Dio, they all have recognizable voices, right? I mean, they all have that identifiable sound and voice that instantly, you know, within seconds of who the, of who's singing. Yeah. And and this is a real human voice. It's not, something that a computer has molded to fit well into the song or altered so that the pitch is correct. This is somebody really singing. And yeah. that, I mean, that's one of the things I love about it. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, when you see that U S festival, I'm sorry, when you see the us festival, <laughs> I do that. when you see the us festival performance and you see him walk on stage singing, you know, and that's what I'm talking about, that casualness that he had. And he's hitting these notes. Yeah. yeah. It's just amazing that he's able to do that. And there's also a video out there, too, from the Defenders of the Faith tour, I want to say. Um, and there's, I think there's one off. There's also a performance that they did from British Steel. You know, there's videos out there. There's the anniversary or special edition of Defenders of the Faith that has a radio performance a simulcast performance back in the day when radio was a thing for those young people listening they used to simulcast concerts that were taking place in other parts of the country on a feed of the iraq radio station because they weren't owned by big conglomerates back then they were owned locally and then you could buy the feed or the simulcast and you could have it you know on a sunday night or a saturday night 
whenever it was. And they put that on the anniversary edition of, of Defenders of the Faith. And again, like his vocals, just the casualness to him hitting these notes is just, it, it, your, your jaw just drops. And, yeah. I, I think that there is a, I think there's a King Biscuit appearance by Judas Priest that's out there. Yeah. Um, you, you're, you're talking about that casualness. And I feel like I read somebody's description of Halford coming out on stage at the US Festival. It's like he's strolling into a pub to order a pint, but he, and he's casually just belting this out. It's that's yeah. you're right. That's really impressive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like you think of how high his range goes in his in the notes that he hits. You know, some guys have to do in their prime what he's doing now at the age of seventy. You know, getting you know the the breath going and, and able to hit that note because he's seventy some years old. Back when, but but like, there's people in their 20s and 30s that are considered in their prime that have to do what he's doing now. But when he was in his prime, yeah, like you said, it was just like he was, you know, like walking into a mall and and just you know casually walking and just without effort hitting these notes. It's amazing. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. The uh, the the four songs that they added um, that were originally from the 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 Japanese. EP, um, I think I'm glad they're on the release because it, it makes it more of a tour about the Killing Machine slash Hellman for, for Leather album. Um, and Delivering the Goods is a is a great song as you as you talked about. It has the the sort of the time change when you get to the chorus that that keeps the listener interested. Um, it's got that really gritty riffy thing that I'm looking for in songs. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that these songs were included. Yeah, me too. I'm glad that they did that because it kind of fills out what was missing. And especially like we said, you know, having more songs off Killing Machine, which was really the album before this and the album before British Steel that was priming them for success. Yeah. Um, I think the Killing Machine album and Unleashed in the East kind of go hand in hand in the importance of what Priest was about to become. Uh, you know, Stained Glass is a great album. Sin After Sin is a great album. Sad Wings of Destiny are all part of that old Priest sound that I don't know if they would have kept that, they would have been able to reach the heights that they were about to embark on. Yeah, yeah. I think they would have been an underground band that had minimal popularity here, here in the States, maybe have been big in other countries, but you know, when you think of delivering the goods and hell bent for leather, hell bent for leather is still a staple in their, in their set list now and, you know, running wild, bringing that back. And of course the green men, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the salad before the main course, basically. Yeah. <laughs> good, good analogy. Right. And and then, you know, to have another, I have to search on, on you on uh, Discogs, my, uh, my downfall of my existence is Discogs. <laughs> uh, if I can find that UK seven inch with Rock Forever, yeah. Hellbent for Leather and Beyond the Realms of Death, that's going to be, that's going to be one of my uh, to-do lists now. To find yeah. Beyond, beyond the Realms of Death is probably the most glaring omission from the yes. mainstream release. So. Yes. I agree a hundred percent. Because it's such a a powerful song, and hearing it live, like I just did a couple of weeks ago, 
you can't help but ask after you hear it, like, why don't they play this song more? Why isn't this like one of the five songs that they play? I mean, obviously, you know, you could say, well, it doesn't have the popularity, but Priest fans are going to see Priest now, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, there's a lot of hardcore Priest fans there. I mean, just looking at the crowd with all the, the vintage T-shirts and the jean jackets with the back patches and everything. Yeah. And they went nuts when when they when they played Beyond the Realm. They went freaking nuts. They should have this song in every set list from here on out. Absolutely agree with you. And one of the most interesting things about Beyond the Realms of Death is that Les Binks gets a writing credit for it. Um, it's 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 credited as Halford and and Binks, and that's pretty unusual because Tipton and Downing wrote most of the music especially the more you go forward in time the more tipton played a dominating role but les binks actually gets a, a co-writing credit on that one yeah i've got a, I've, i'm gonna go on discogs when we're done recording see how much that seven inch uk <laughs> is with that uh with beyond the realms of death on there that's like that's i'm gonna obsess over that now <laughs> yeah <laughs> now that i've heard it live and now that i know that it's part of that set list from Unleashed in the East. I got to have that. Yeah. Um, well, let me know if you find it and how much you pay for it. <laughs> I, I swear, Discogs, it's like this website that I go into that once I'm in, I know I'm just going to like come out of it ashamed with how much money I just blew on vinyl. It's so it's so addicting and it's so like at your fingertips and you can get anything you want of any vinyl out there. It's just a matter of how much you want to pay for it. Usually that's that's true. I mean, when I think about just the the, the number of releases from this year alone and, and my insistence on getting a physical copy of it, um, I think about how much I have spent <laughs> just this year on new music. <laughs> it's uh, a little alarming. <laughs> yeah. As I was telling Devon Allman on uh, a recent interview that my addiction is live music. And, and he, he, he responded, that's a pretty safe addiction, which I agree with. However, my wallet doesn't. <laughs> yeah. But, except for financially. <laughs> yes. But my other addiction is physical music physical copies of music you know yeah so, um, you know one of the things one of the things that that makes me really happy is that i'm probably gonna like make mention of this at some point towards the end of the year when we're talking about year end lists is i've got let's see one two three four i've got five no i'm make that six live albums that were released this year um that are all noteworthy albums um, one of them isn't really a new release. One of them is, is a re-release of something that was in a very limited release before. But the other five are all uh, new releases of live albums. That really warms my heart. Well, I think that's a good point that you bring up because when you look at what the 70s meant to rock music and what live, live music, live albums meant to rock music and those bands that existed, you know, a lot of the bands that we've talked about, like Kiss, like Thin Lizzy, we can put UFO into that as well. And I think you could probably include Judas Priest. Is their popularity soared after the live album that they came out? I mean, every yeah. album that I just mentioned, um, Thin Lizzy's Live and Dangerous, 
Strangers in the Night by UFO, Kiss Alive, and Unleashed in the East. Maiden's popularity was already there with with Live After Death. I mean, they just came off a of Power Slave, and maybe their popularity grew a little bit, but they weren't struggling, which is my point, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the Humble Pie album, because Humble Pie was such a live band, and again, their albums really didn't capture that. You could pretty much point to that, although there wasn't a lot of live albums being released at that time. So it's really hard to gauge of what it meant to their popularity. However, when you do talk about Humble Pie, people always mention the live performances. So in essence, it did. But there's so many other bands and artists in the 70s that have the level of popularity because of the live album during that decade the live album that they released that I don't think it's a bad idea for new rock bands that are out there right now to capture themselves in a live setting. Yeah. That if a young kid hears the roar of a crowd or a crowd singing along, they're like, wow, I got to go experience this. This is really, really cool because a lot of young people are all about the experience now. Right. I mean, they, you know, that's why vinyl is so popular is because a lot of younger people are buying it because it's kind of a collectible. It's part of the experience. So if you release a live album and you hear a crowd roaring and singing along and doing all this stuff, you're going to want to go experience that. You're like, wow, I gotta go. I gotta go check what this is all about. This sounds awesome. The way people are singing along and, you know, cheering and all that stuff. So I do think when you say it warms your heart, a lot more live albums are being released. That might be something that some of these young bands have to really look at because let's face it, you have to stay in front of your fan base these days. You have to keep releasing new material. And what do some of the legacy artists do? Look at the stones. The stones release have a cycle. They release a new album. They do a tour and then they release a live album of that tour. So everybody gets to experience it who didn't go to the show. Obviously it's the Rolling Stones. They have the name, but if you're a band and you're in your, and you're a new band and you're having a tour to make money, right. And you got to stay on tour to make money, release that studio album. Right. And then eight months, 10 months later, release that live album while you're still on tour to try to bring people into seeing you live. That's not a bad formula to, to look at. Yeah, I think that, uh, I think you're right. It, it's, it's important for the continued vitality of, of rock and roll for live recordings of live music to exist, both to get people interested in going to see the band live. And I think that perhaps more than anything else, seeing a performer in person live probably does more to make someone want pick up an instrument and play than just listening to studio recordings. I mean, obviously there, there are things that you think, can I do that? But in this age of digital uh, access to recording and the ability to overdub and, and do things over and over, it, it pales in comparison to watching somebody do it in person. And I think that that's the way that rock and roll survives is through live performance. And if those live performances and a, and a live album can bring people out to want to experience that, yeah, I think that's a win-win for for everybody. You know, yeah. you know, heck, that's that that's why Kiss became the band that it was because Kiss Alive. You know, all these young people, these teenagers heard this and was like, "Man, this sounds awesome! It sounds incredible! I got to go check it out." 
So maybe there's something to it. I don't know. But the live album certainly has become kind of lost in terms of a band's catalog. One of the bands that we talk about frequently on the show that was never really able to produce, well, there's two bands really, that was never able to produce a live album during their prime. Which one was Van Halen. Yeah. And the other one was Led Zeppelin. And I don't want to hear people say, well, Song Remains the Same. Song Remains the Same does not capture Zeppelin the way a bootleg does. When you've got 30-minute versions of Days and Confused and Whole Lot of yeah. Love, and how many more times, don't tell me that Song Remains the Same is an, is a accurate, an accurate portrayal of what Zeppelin was live. And to not have a live album of Eddie Van Halen playing in his prime. I mean, Live Without a Net is pretty close to his prime. You know, when you hear him play, especially the Eruption version, but to not have that on a on a CD format or an album format yeah. is criminal. And I think hopefully at some point there are lost live tapes that they have that they can put out similar to what Zeppelin did and How the West Was Won, which does give an actual, actual portrayal of what Zeppelin was like live. So, but getting back to my say, I mean, Live albums seem to have just become, you know, live music is now like an afterthought in terms of being released on like anniversary editions or, you know, whatever you want to call it, special editions. And I think the way rock music is now with a lot of these new bands, having that in your catalog as a release, I think is, I think is a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, Something there, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll take that. <laughs> well, in closing, um, we'll get our, you know, we'll share our thoughts. Uh, my thoughts are on this album. I'll give you the last word, but my thoughts on this album, like I said, this is the kind of the primer for what was to come for Judas Priest. And the reason why Judas Priest became what they, what they became um, in the eighties with this album Unleashed in the East really does you know, it puts the keys in the car, it puts the keys in the ignition and starts the engine for what is to come with British Steel and Screaming for Vengeance. I'll even include Point of Entry and Defenders of the Faith. Of course, Turbo came after that. But, you know, when you talk about the legacy albums, three of them really became or came after Unleashed in the East. Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, when I think about Judas Priest, and this time frame, um, I'm not sure that there is enough credit given to kind of the pioneering pioneering aspect of Tipton and Downing and the twin guitar attack. Um, I mean, along with Thin Lizzy, they're really kind of the, the the trailblazers of having that dual lead guitar approach to things. Uh, because a lot of the other bands that were sort of the um, the genesis of heavy music, whether you're talking about Sabbath or Zeppelin um, or, or Van Halen a little later on, they're all a single guitar player, but with both Thin Lizzy and Judas Priest, they really successfully exploited having two strong lead players, both in trading off between lead lines and in harmonizing with one another, which is something that always makes my spine just tingle when I hear two guitars in harmony playing complex lines. I think that's fabulous. And they really were there at the beginning of this. Um, and I think that as you listen to this album, um, I don't hear, and I don't have the 
the most educated ears for this kind of thing. I don't hear a lot of things on the guitars that I think are overdubs. Um, there's only one or two spots where I hear something that I think maybe was a rhythm piece that was plugged in just to fill out the sound a little bit. But most of it sounds like it really is the two guitars carrying the day together as they're playing together. And they are, are so in sync with one another. Um, it, it really, I marvel it that they're, they're really almost playing as one. And I think this album does a great job of capturing that. For those bootleg lovers that like to record music that's not released, there is a bootleg of this show that includes all the songs, the extra songs, um, Rock Forever, Delivering the Goods, Hellbent for Leather, Starbreaker, and Beyond the Realms of Death. It also includes White Heat, Red Hot, and Take on the World. You can find that under the title Tyranny Unleashed in the East. So if you have the means and you want to find that for your collection, that is uh, that will give you the full picture of that set list of that tour in Japan that we talked about. Um, I don't know what the sound quality is. Obviously, if it's soundboard, it's usually a better recording. Um, not to say that you can't get a really good audience recording of a show, but typically soundboard recordings are better. So if you do find that, bootleg and it is a soundboard recording it might be worth picking up my um my advice whenever you do purchase a bootleg is to always listen to it before you buy it usually uh, bootleg dealers that you find at record shows will have a portable cd player with headphones that you can listen to prior to it and it kind of gives you the idea of what type of sound quality that you have but um if you're looking for a complete show of of what um of what the setlist was tyranny unleashed in the east and you can also find some of these tracks on priest live and rare cd um they are not the same versions as on unleashed in the east but it gives you an idea of what the performances were like and i even think it includes evening star um and take on the world um, which I also mentioned too, that's on that bootleg. So um, some good stuff's out there if you want to find it. Rob, it's been a blast, man. I really enjoy these conversations. There's nothing that's quite like a live album to be a time capsule. And uh, that, that gives me all sorts of joy. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't wait to do the next one, which will be first quarter of next year. I think we're going to include... Live at uh, No Sleep Till Hammersmith. We'll put uh, Live Killers from Queen. I think what was the what was the other one that we had on there? Was it Live at Leeds by the Who? Live at Leeds was was talked about. That's a great live album. Um, someday I'm gonna maybe try and convince you that uh, the Allman Brothers of the Fillmore East is uh, a good inclusion. I, I know that hasn't been one of your areas of interest in the, in the past. <laughs> well. You know what? I may check that out. I may check that out. I, I may put either that or maybe Rush Exit Stage Left. Oh, another great one. Yeah. On uh, on the poll. So when we have it. So look out for that poll, probably dropping in January. And then we'll do another one of these episodes in February. So we'll figure out which one we're going to talk about. But these are always a great uh, uh, way to revisit music, way to re- revisit live music, give you a sense of some of the bands that we're not able to see live anymore. Um, and what they were like, and uh, always enjoy the conversation. 
Thanks for having me, Jay. I, I really appreciate it. Um, it. It's been fun again, and I hope you have a great holiday season. Absolutely. The chill is in the air. We had 70-degree weather on Thursday. Now it's in the 40s here in Chicago. Thanksgiving is a week and a half away, and then it's on to the Christmas holiday season and New Year's. So we'll be getting, uh, we'll be doing some more episodes closer to the holidays. But uh, for those listening, uh, this is going to be released before Thanksgiving. But if if you're listening around Thanksgiving, hope you have a great turkey day. Enjoy fall. Enjoy the leaves falling and uh, the heart of football season as we, uh, especially college football, which I got to go catch some games today. But uh, follow Rob at the Recividus on Twitter. I'm not even going to attempt to spell it, but Rob in the Hood, you can, I'll, I'll, when I post the episode, his, his link will be in there. So give him a follow. Uh, I'm Jay Scott. This has been another great episode of the Hook Rocks Live Album Review, a quarterly episode or a quarterly um, series that we do. Hope you enjoyed it. Take care of each other. Stay safe. And we will talk soon. Thanks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.